Welcome to Jesse War Radio. Jesse War Radio is dedicated to peering behind the veil of esoteric iconology and symbolism and is available from jessiewar.com. Each week we interview authors, historians, thinkers and artists in an effort to discern the truth behind symbols, myths, icons and allegories. New episodes are posted every Friday. Members of Jesse War Radio gain access to the second hour of every show. Find out more about becoming a supporting member of Jesse War Radio by clicking on the subscribe link in the top navigation menu at jessiewar.com. Thank you for tuning in. Patrice Chaplin is an internationally renowned playwright and author who has published more than 27 books, plays, and short stories. Her most notable works include Albany Park, Siesta, which was made into a film starring Jodie Foster and Isabella Rossellini, Into the Darkness Laughing, Hidden Star, Night Fishing, and Death Trap. As a bohemian in Paris during the 1950s and 60s, she spent time with Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Married to Charlie Chaplin's son Michael and living and working in Hollywood, she was friends with everyone from Lauren Bacall and Miles Davis to Salvador Dali and Jean Cocteau, who gave her a starring role in one of his films. Today, Chaplin finds herself thrown deep into the grail culture and at the heart of a raging new controversy about the reality of the Rennes-le-Chateau mystery. During hour one of our interview with Patrice Chaplin, we discuss life and death of Modigliani and his quote, death makes the market. We discuss Patrice Chaplin's background, her meeting with Jean-Paul Sartre and Jean Genet and Salvador Dali, Michael Chaplin, her ex-husband, Jean Cocteau, as well as her book Siesta, from which a movie uh, starring Jodie Foster was made, Secret Societies in Girona, The Validity of Keeping Secrets, Initiation of Famous People into Occult Orders, uh, and Nexus Rurik. Hi, Patrice Chaplin. Thanks very much for coming on today to Jesse Wall Radio. How are you doing today? Hi, Jesse. I'm great. I'm looking forward to this. Um, it's a subject I always want to talk about. That's great. Um, I understand that uh, you've just re-released your first book. Is that correct? No, it's not my first book. It's like my 29th book, actually. Oh, really? It's, um, yes. I'd, I'd been writing since the early 70s, 1969. Uh, and and I have, I've been writing nonstop books, plays, uh, some journalism, um, some bit of film. Um, radio, nonstop, really, um, and some around nine in the nineteen late nineteen seventies. No, excuse me, in the nineteen eighties, I um, came upon on material about the painter Modigliani and his life in Paris, um, and it was a surprise. It was completely a new direction for me, but I was totally fascinated by it and so I was kind of electrified by it and thought I I really should go into this and just follow it and see if it's an article or um just see what it was could be something for the radio I didn't know and it turned into two books one novel uh forget me not um published by Methuen 
that's in London, and also um, Into the Darkness Laughing, which is the biography of uh, Modigliani, Amadeo Modigliani, the Italian painter, and his friend and mistress, companion Jeanne Ebitain, who was a French, much younger artist girl from a middle-class background in Paris. Um, I wrote the biography, and then it went into various journalism articles because of the, the material being new and not having been known before. Um, I also became a radio play for Radio 3 and also for theatre here in London and in Bath, also in Norway, the Black Box Theatre in um, Oslo and in Spain, in Barcelona, actually performed. It's um, a two-hander, and it was performed um, when they had this show, the Modigliani Exhibition on in, in Barcelona. It was, it was the, probably the fullest exhibition they'd ever had of his work. Oh, really? And yeah. that was it. Was that in two thousand four? And it was amazing because they the actors performed amongst all the paintings. So I just mentioned that because it was incredible. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. And then it went to Paris and and France, and then it sort of it trailed off. You know, it became it, it spent about six months in Paris, and then um, it was going to be a movie, and I was asked to go to um, L.A. and I went there to Alan Ladd. Junior, his his company, and the red carpet was out a bit for this, and they wanted uh, they wanted this as a film. They had people lined up, but they wanted you'll never guess a happy ending, which oh. was not a never be a happy ending. It was not a happy ending. In right. fact, the ending was what made it made it you know so compelling after the death. But suddenly, his pictures to sell had something to do with it. So the Alan Ladd company said. If my ending won't go down two deaths in two days, won't go down in Texas. So you have to write it's a happy one. I said, "How? What can I do? There is none. Well, I might be happy now, but certainly not then." And <laughs> that was yeah. that. So that's yeah. the that that's the you know the background basically of that of those books. But um, the research was um, sort of in kind of coincidental. And I I haven't had that before. You know, ideas occur, I'm sure they do with you. They get occur and and you, you think, where did that come from? It's not really where I'm going at this time, but I'll do it. I'll give it a try. And then suddenly four years have gone by. Yeah, you know? yeah. How did you conduct the research on that? Was it, it was all original research for that? Yes, because the thing about Modigliani, um, he... He came from Livorno. He was from a Sephardic Jewish family. Um, he came from Livorno, always believed in himself. He thought he he sort of knew his worth. And he came to Paris because that was a place to come to. Um, and he came to Paris in, I think it was 1910, 1911. And he was very well-dressed. He was very well. He was elegant. Um, the, the art world of Montparnasse, they liked the look of him. You know, he had a, he was very, very educated. He had a very, very educated grandfather who, who taught him 
the kind of real things about life. And he lived in Montparnasse, and you know, many people, both men and women, were attracted to him. Um, and he started his work, and he did those paintings, which are famous, I suppose, that people had very long necks, you know, and they were uh -huh. kind of distorted, you know, and might have one eye open, one shut. Um, nobody in Paris understood that. They liked Picasso. They liked um, a more fullness of form, more or cubist or... Um, or in chocolate box, you know, but there was certainly nothing like what he was doing. And it seemed to be the story then of the rest of his life until he died in 1920, that the years were spent with very few people actually seeing his work and saying, this is marvelous, you know, this this in enhances my, my life. This I want. There was nothing doing for him. It was like he had exhibition at the birth of the wheel gallery and the police closed it on the first first day because there was the new the nude had pubic hair. Visible. Oh really? So what what year would have that have been? That was in nine I think it was nineteen sixteen. Right, okay. And that you're talking about it's it says female nude iris tree. I'm looking at a picture of it I think. Oh, are you? Okay. I think so, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know what it was. It was in the advert on the, I mean, I haven't got it in front of me, but it is the, the nude where um, uh, it's in the Bertha Will Gallery um, advertisement. And you just see that, that, you know, she's just a languid girl there. Yeah. And that shut down that show. Um I'm, I think the thing was that he had um, Sharon, that's C-H-E-R-O-N, Sharon was the um, best sort of dealer in, in Paris at that time. And he took him on for a, a very short while, but short was the word there, didn't, not long. Um, he then dropped him, he didn't sell anything. The only picture he sold, he, he sold two pictures in his life, one was to Francis Carco, who was a journalist and writer and a, fr a friend of his, an admirer, he liked him a lot. And he he um, he bought a picture. And then in um, London, at the end of Modigliani's life, there was a show with the Sitwell brothers. They did um, an exhibition, and they sold one of his model, Lunia Tchaikovsky, and they paid good money for that. But then it all died out again. Did people accuse him of, of having a naive style? Is that why he wasn't popular? Or do you just think it, it would just, he just wasn't his time to be popular yet? It wasn't his time to be popular because what he couldn't sell, well, he couldn't sell, he couldn't sell anything. I mean, he couldn't even, people didn't even, but they said those horrors, they should be burned. Wow. I mean, there were, you know, kinds of quite significant reactions to, to his work. That work um, in, in just before Christmas, one of those one of those pieces of work sold in in Christie's auction for one seven hundred seventy million dollars. Wow! It's the second largest um, price for a picture ever. Hmm. So um, it just he said before he died, death makes market. Um, now the thing about the what was interesting 
about their story is because I think because of the ending. He died, he had he knew he had TB. He drank a lot, but then they all did then. Um he seemed to work better when he drank. He could drink two bottles of Mark or or um, not absinthe, but whatever was around. It was strong stuff, Mark, and it was what he drank. And he would, with that energy, the alcohol fueled him up. He could do the work. He could do the painting in one sitting. It's very rare that he wanted someone to come back. He did mainly portraits. He didn't like doing landscapes. So he did three landscapes in his life, but that was when he had to go to the south of France for his health. And there was no one would sit for him. So he had to paint, you know, he'd paint landscapes. But he, the real point about Modigliani was what he wanted to do. He had a very sound education in art before he set foot in Paris. And he certainly wanted to be a, sculpt, a sculptor. That was, his, that was his love, was sculpture. And he got um, his friends in Paris, you know, to go out at night and get materials like stone and material from buildings or even the railway to kind of bring it back to the studio so he could work with it. But in the end, because he had TB and his health was going, money was running out, had run out by the First World War because his mother couldn't send him anymore. Um, he saw his health couldn't take working in, in stone. He couldn't do it. So he took his sculptures to Livorno and his birthplace and nobody wanted them and so he threw them in the canal and that was the end of that it was uh. like dying in his work um came back to paris and then painted portraits nudes that would then that became what he did but his first love was sculpture without any doubt and so he he met his um he had two big affairs in his life. One was um, with Beatrice Hastings, the writer, South African. Um, he got, used to drink with her, really, they drank and fought. And um, after her, he came Jeanne of Utown. There was a Russian girl called Anna. She came in the story, but not very profoundly. Um, but Jeanne of Utown, he, he, she was, she was pure. She was um, young. She was sweet. She was um, mysterious. She was silent. No one heard her speak. And at the end of it, her devotion was there for him throughout. But she was a person of character and strength. She was not, as it turned out, I did the research, kind of like she'd been portrayed in previous biographies, like a domestic drudge who had made him drink, ruined his career, given him children he couldn't deal with, um, stopped him getting a cure for TB. Um, you know, generally, she didn't say anything, so there was something wrong with her. Um, she was portrayed especially by William Fifield, he started it. He started as an American biographer um, in the 70s. And Seychell, who was a French biographer, Pierre Seychell, he did a very profound biography before that, I think in the 50s or 60s. But he, his biography was full 
but he didn't have anything much about Jean Hebutin in it. Um, Andre Salmon had written previously a rather sweet and lovely book that they all said, well, she was the Madonna. She was the sacrificial lamb to Modigliani's talent. But when we came to William Feifold, he wrote that she was a domestic drudge. She was, um, she brought him down, caused his death. Um, quite strong stuff. And when I read that, I realized that people could say what they wanted because no one was going to disapprove. So then the next book came out, and then Jean in there was even worse. You know, Modigliani was a kind of perpetrator virtually. I mean, it became, um, it, it just went off on a, a something which wasn't right at all. It didn't feel right. It didn't seem at all correct. It was, it was just a chance swipe at the past and other people picked it up. That, I think, was when I read about his dying, they'd been in the studio alone for a week, or at least a week. No one came near them. It was January, freezing cold. Um, he, there was no food. They had sardines to eat, that was all. Nothing, no, maybe alcohol. He had got a terrible flu, which came into meningitis, um, was lying dying. Um, she was pregnant, about to give birth, nine months. Um, in the end, she got help, and he was taken to the hospital where he died the following two days, no, two days later. And um, she then went to the hospital to see if she could have be there to have her baby, and they said, you're not ready yet. She went back to her parents in a kind of completely numb and terrible state. And then took her life by falling from the window with a oh. baby inside her. And it was such a terrible death. The parents couldn't take the body in. And a man with a handcart took the, this, this tragic, um, you know, two, two bodies, right, back to the studio. And she was laid there, and, and Mary Wasilev, who ran a canteen for the artists, came round and sat with her to keep away the rats, you see. And then, then people began to know what had happened. And they gave um, a very big, splendid funeral for Modigliani, and he was buried in Pale Chasse. And she was just taken away silently with five people present. To be buried in the um, in the suburbs, um, and the thing, the story was incredibly harrowing, um, and there was a great deal of hope in their lives and love. There was a great deal of good things there, which were rejected, which came to nothing. You know, mm -hmm. things were constantly. It's going to be better now. New dealer is here. There was a a good, he was a good dealer. Came out onto into their lives a Polish dealer, but he was a gambler, a poker player. And um, there was uh, Lunia Tchaikovska, who was um, married to a baron, um, but she was in love with Modigliani, and she wanted to take him away and save him. And people said, well, when Lunia was with him, um, he never drank, which I think you know if you're. An alcoholic, I don't know that there's anyone that's going to stop you drinking, not a human being, I wouldn't have thought. But, you know, if it, if it was the case, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But Jean was sort of left 
in the south of France. They'd gone to the south because the um Zabrowski, the, the Polish um um agent, you know, the the one who was handing his work, said, We go down there and we'll get all the in 1917, that was it. We all the ones who are on the run from the war, who've got money and they're down in the hotels in Nice and so on, Cote, you know, the Cote d'Azur. Um, we'll sell pictures to them. We get, you know, we make some money. We live. Well, it didn't work out like that. And Jean was pregnant um, with her first baby, first child, and the mother had to come too. And um, there was no money. Um, and Maglioni didn't sell anything, and he got ill, um, and they stayed. But some of the time when they got the mother to go back to Paris and they were alone, they had amazing life together. Um, and then he left for Paris because of the um, exhibition that was going to be held in London and with the Sitwell brothers, and he wanted to get it together, but Lunia was waiting there. Um, and John had to stay in the south of France with a baby. Um, and then she decided to come back to Paris because she realized she was pregnant with another one, a second baby. That was the one um, that later died with her. But um, the thing was, it wasn't, um, these, they weren't unhappy people, you know, depressed and going towards an inevitable end. They were people who had, a lot of hope and talent. But that makes it that makes it even more tragic. Yes, it does. And now I, what I did, you see, what happened was I read them about the death and how a picture had just been sold for a large amount of money. And this was in the 1980s. Um, I was in a in a hospital waiting room because one of my children were ill and. Um, I was. I read this a short piece, just saying, you know, about their terrible life and this huge sum of money which um, had gone for a picture of Johnny Buterin. And I was kind of like frozen um, with, well, electrocuted by it. I don't know. It was a weird feeling. And I went straight on the phone to my publisher, um, Heinemann, and they said, "Do it. Just write it." Do it like that wasn't you know not even show us a sample of what you're going to do or or a book breakdown. I was in the middle of another book at that time, but I said, well, look, I do I do this now. Won't take long. I do something, and I could write something for newspapers. You know, I could. I thought I could handle it. I thought it could be quick. Well, yeah. And then the more I read all the biographies, I thought these are not they're not right. So by chance, by chance, this man. I'd been working with on a film. He was a film designer and he came around and he said, um, did you want to know anything about Modigliani's um, French friend, Jean? I said, yeah, well, of course, yes, if there's something. He said, well, I know the the granddaughter, um, oh no, the grandson um, who is in in Paris and the mother who knew um, the the daughter of the mother, who knew Jeanne Buterin and Modigliani, the daughter, um, has just opened um, a casket of letters and photographs. I've heard this from the grandson. And would you like to see them? Because they're all about Jeanne Buterin. 
So I said, yes, let's go and get a plane then. This is before Eurostar. So I got on a plane, went straight there, went to the house in the suburbs. Um, and she she was um, the daughter of Jean-Louis best friend called Bibi Rouge. Um, she was um, she was also um, a, an artist. And she and Jean-Louis used to go to the École d'Art Décorative. And there was another school as well. They went to, they went, and they, they drew, you know, they had a, a creative life and also a kind of artistic life sitting on the terraces of the dome or the Wotan cafes. And that would be before the First World War. So we're talking about 1912, 1913. And then into in nine, the beginning of the war, they still went, every, all the artists went to the cafes because it's the only place they could keep warm. And but these girls were not like the Russian artists or the Polish. These were girls who came from middle class backgrounds, you know, religious, pious backgrounds. And so she somewhere met him on the cafe um, terrace. And I think her brother actually spoke to him first. The brother was called Andrea Butan. He was also he was an artist, and he lived in La Rue which was the, uh, another artist group, um, a lot of Russian artists up there, further away than Montparnasse. But um, it seemed that um, on meeting him, she people said about it, she was someone who had been looking all her life for the, 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 the mystery that kind of would match her, the kind of the exhortation, you know, the superb spiritual awakening. And it came via meeting Modigliani. He was he was the one. Mm-hmm. He was the experience, the presence, everything she looked for. And she was just bound from that moment on. Is that is that the only connection that you have been able to find uh, directly to Modigliani on a personal level? Or have you known other people that knew him? I met his um his niece. Um I met the um his brother in law his son in law because there was a surviving daughter, and she married Victor Nexstein. He was a philosopher. I met him. I met her, Andre Hebutown, who was married to Georgette. They were living around the corner from the, the, the son-in-law. They, they, I mean, they had no idea that, any, that anyone else existed. They thought that Jean was living you know, in Italy, lived, well brought up, everything good. Not at all. She was living with her husband, Victor, and had two children, but she had you know, a serious um, problem and a sad life. And she spent a lot of it trying to prove her mother wasn't this kind of um, domestic dolt, you know, that, that ruined her father's life. She's, you know, she was trying, but no one would speak to her. The thing, because, it, you know, the, the story was so sad, that's why it was so locked away. They certainly would speak to me because I had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I'd written yeah. enough books. They said, oh, well, you know, she's got some credit here. Let's, we will trust her. So therefore, I got to hear from one of the models who were still around. That was in the south of France, in Eau de Cagnes, where he'd, um, he'd been, he'd lived there for a while. Um, especially a brothel owner in Nice, where he'd also stayed when he had the flu. Um, several of his artist friends, their, their descendants, uh, um, 
the another lady who was um, apparently had a child by him. All of his, all of his, it's strange because all of his relationships with women, they, all the women ended up bad. They ended up in bad ways, in like bad death. But do you think that might have had something to do with him? Was was he a bad influence in certain ways or no? No, I wouldn't have thought so. I know. I think possibly, having known him, he was such um, a charismatic and spiritual, and in some ways pure being, that nobody else quite matched up to it. And I think life became rather dreary and sad. Mm. I think they, kept, they went into sort of bereavement. There's four of them I know of. There's four. I, there was one in, in the south of France. She was the last one. There was Lunia Tchaikovska. Um, there was um, an heiress called um, Simon, who just just let herself die in the street after he died to join him. Another one, um, Beatrice Hastings, had a bad ending. And Tony Jan. Um, no one, no, none of them. It's, it's just a point, you know, that they seem to pay high for having known that kind of exhortation, I guess. And they, one of them said, well, you know, to be with him for a week was, in, was enough, was, was worth it, even though nothing else was the same again. So you know, it's an on-patel here, really, aren't we? Could you give us a background on yourself? Uh, from what I've read, you've, you yourself have led quite a glamorous life, and uh, you've known some, you've <laughs> done some rather amazing things. So can you tell us about yourself? And then also just like we could get into um, more connections. To I could go, I could run it. Yeah. So, I mean, I did, I did have a sense when I was, um, I mean, I think I was born, I was born um, an old soul. Um, the first conscious memory or, or consciousness moment I had was when I suddenly saw the sky blue sky, whipping wind in a sycamore tree, line full of sheep. Um, it was during the Second World War. Um, and um, I, I remember sort of looking down and seeing this little kind of, these little hands in a, a big pram with the kind of um, fine, you know, no, binding around, you know, to hold you in the pram, what reins mm -hmm. or whatever you call it, straps. Yeah. And I was lying there and I had a little um, matinee dress on with green stitching. And I saw this, I was aware I was in this big black pram and looked at the tree. And I just, <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, not here again. <laughs> and then it all closed over. Um, and I didn't remember that for a long time. I was about seven or something. And I said to my mother, you know, I, I had a dress with green stitching. She said, oh, no, that was your first matinee dress. That's what you called it in those days. And you wouldn't remember that. You were between three and six months old. Oh, wow. Oh. Well, I did. And uh, <laughs> I didn't go on remembering things as a baby. But very, when I was very young, I, did, I was very curious about French girls and what their names were and what they wore and how they were different to English girls. And... Um, my mother didn't get that one at all, didn't understand it, thought she'd better change that subject. So 
um, I kind of fast forward my life. It seemed that when I was um, four or five, four or five, I was, you know, in the care of one of my aunties in Portsmouth, um, and there were a lot of sailors going, the soldiers going over to the boats to go to the war. It's at the end of the war. And I was on the beach. I went to the beach and I was, I joined the mudlarks. They were kids who danced in the mud. And the, and the soldiers threw coins and chocolate bars to us. <laughs> really? And it was a wonderful feeling of freedom. I remember the joy of dancing in the mud and by the sea and these men crossing, I, dozens and dozens of men crossing, just throwing money. And we gathered it all up and I'd go home to my auntie and I hide the money and, and then I go back the next day. I mean, I don't know how long that lasts, probably not that long because she found out, no doubt. But, um, I realized then um, I love freedom. I love the sense of it. And I went off and hitchhiked when I was 15. I was gone um, with my friend Beryl. And we went um, down through France. And again, it was like meeting people that afterwards when you said, you know, I'd met Jean-Paul Sartre and Simon de Beauvoir right. every morning at 11 o'clock because of the reason they were interested in my friend Beryl and I, we were trad jazz dancers and we danced in the streets and in the clubs and we were really good at it. We were very good at it in London. We used to escape from our homes and go and dance in the in the in the jazz clubs. Um and we you know, Beryl was really very good. She was fabulous. I was whatever I was, but I was doing okay, I guess, and loved it. Um and um de Beauvoir and and Jean-Paul Sartre took us in into the cafe that was either the um, De Magot or the Bonaparte and 11 o'clock and they would teach us about existentialism and my French wasn't too good it was even better than it is now but it wasn't too good but Beryl's was okay and it was um, it was there that they said, well, you, you live in the moment. You know, you have no um, past. You, you don't worry about the future. You're in the moment. And this is what an existentialist is. And I thought, well, this is good. We've got an identity. And then we hitched down. Um, I met Jean Genet as well at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote Flowers, uh, A Lady of the Flowers, amazing stuff. Um, and they were kind of on people of the night, you know, out in those cafes all night long. And, we had nowhere to stay. I mean, we were we were just um, we were bohemians on a travel to meet gypsies. That was it. We did. We got as far as Seville and the five villages around. But the gypsies were we were more gypsies than them. They were not. They were stationary. And later on, when I used to go and see them, they were kind of they were on HP for like their fridge was HP. Their television. They had very very kind of grounded lives except for one of them we went off to america you can't come he died of drugs unfortunately but most of them were you know they were then surplus as i said but well as the french said about them. but they were um they taught they did teach me um about reading signs of of nature i mean they, they didn't re- teach me palm reading then i learned that later but um, I did um, have a facility for clairvoyance. Definitely. Oh, did you? Yeah. But I didn't use it later on. Are you still clairvoyant? Yes. Yeah. Oh, really? I don't 
you lose it, you can close it down. We don't lose it. I think in a way it went into my writing. It went into probably opening up a focus for things I did in in the in Girona later. I don't think it opened up um much about the Modigliani material because I think I got that just by being in the right place at the right time. How rare is that? But from one person to another to another, I gathered stuff. I even met someone I'd been years ago. I went to drama school, went to Raja, and I did some um, stuff in um, sort of London theatres and also I did quite a lot of stuff in the provinces in the theatre and also bit small television, but it was small in those days and some stuff in France. But I ba- basically, I'm, and I did modelling quite a, quite a bit. But then I always went off and I travelled. That's really what I wanted to do always. But I always seemed to go to Spain to the same place, Girona, where I'd first gone in my first travel. And it was like crossing the bridge from one bank to another and knowing if you go over there, your life is is going to change. It's never going to be the same. And how true it was. Did that have anything to do with your friendship with Salvador Dali? Oh, yes. That came really through Iris Tree, who was um, um, the mother of one of my close friends, um, Lorna, sorry, grandmother. And she was a, a mother of um, Ivan Moffat, who was um, a friend in Hollywood, who was a writer and producer with George Stevens. Um, Salvador Dali I stayed with when I was married to my first husband Michael Chaplin um, we were there in Port Legat where Dali lived I mean he was I mean just incredibly steeped in mysticism he was an initiate he, but he was a very very focused guy I mean he was I mean he was really doing the stuff and he knew a lot he was I think he hid behind stuff, you know, like at the St. Regis Hotel. I know about some of the things that he and Gala and his friends, you know, got into all kinds of, um, I just suppose, wild, kind of extreme, right on the edge behavior, right right on the edge stuff. I think that's Mm -hmm. where, where he wanted to be. He wanted to be right on the edge and go further. He wanted, like, all artists to go further. That was um right. right I guess was he he was doing and you you mentioned your husband was named Michael Chaplin yeah and that's where you get your name and that's Charlie Chaplin's son mm-hmm. and I had two children with with Michael um and then I I met um you know I'm really proud that I met people like I met Jean Cocteau I mean um mm-hmm. I met him through my connection with Girona I met him in Paris. And I also did a small film with him in Girona. Um, that was in the mid fifties. Um, I saw him in Paris before he died. He was certainly he was another um, initiate into metaphysical um, practice and work. I mean, he did some very profound stuff, definitely. Um, I also met Miles Davis because he did the music for a film of one of my books, Fiesta. And that was a, you know, it was a really good moment. And Lauren Bacall, she took one of my books for a film. And I I just think of the people that I was lucky to meet and know, like, 
flu winters and people like that before that era ended because you couldn't find them now they're not they're gone yeah so it was you know um, i was in la at the time just at the end of the time i most loved about movies and hollywood and all of that which is my dream for all my childhood really and there were the people they were still there just about me and the same places that um they used to frequent i mean they shut swabs um deli down just about when i or drugstore down just about when i got there but you know there was um it was all jack nichols and um all kind of you know the the yeah brando well he was before jack nicholson but i mean it was i met monty clift you know which was Mm -hmm. a mega meeting i i just thought he that would stay with me always that was before he died they made a movie out of your book um siesta uh that starred jodie foster and isabella rossellini yeah and, and gabriel byrne and there was a lot of people in that. <laughs> there was Grace Jones. Was... Oh, really? Yes. So what I'd like, you know what we could talk about now, which would be really, uh, could be really informative, is you've mentioned that Dolly and uh, Jean Cocteau were initiates and that they, they, produ- they practiced magic, right? And that they belonged to orders and stuff like that. Well, so... I wouldn't say magic. I would say um, uh, they did practices which took them into other dimensions. It sounds like you basically, you have firsthand knowledge of where uh, show business and the occult cross paths. And, and I think that's something that interests a lot of people is, you know, are these, are these celebrities, a lot of stars, are they practicing uh, occult, you know, rituals, things like that? And people talk about the Illuminati and all that stuff. Well, they did. I mean, they did um, to some degree when I worked up there, I worked up there for, on and off for about 10 years. Um, my kids were still in London. I mean, I'd come back because I'd look after them and I'd go back there and do a job and come back again. And, um, and that was kind of good. Uh, I would dip in and out, which probably wasn't a bad idea for that place because, you know, they they see you come in and they go out. It looks better than if you're just there looking for work. Mm-hmm. And I always went with a job, so that was fine. But most of them I knew and met because um, I would say they were all interested in knowing the future, knowing, well, knowing their future, right? Um, I would say, too, that some, like, this director I work with, he, he said, look, I don't want to know. If I'm going to have a bad day, I'm going to have it anyway. So why know about it? If I'm going to have a good day, so what? I'll have it. And I thought that's one way to look at it. But I think that in some other way, Clairvoyance does steer you into perhaps a better, more subtle direction where you can perhaps avoid the full kind of blast of karmic kind of payoff, which is a bit further down the line. I think um, it is a very useful and beautiful skein of kind of delicacy which works and heals. I think in that way it's useful. I'm, I don't think you know telling people false um hopeful things is a a very smart idea because it leads to inevitable disappointment or telling people at the date of their death right it's not a good idea is it no no No, not at all no 
What about uh, so? What about Dolly specifically? What sort of things did he do in terms of occult practice? Well, I because I was um, I was guided in my journey around the eleventh sky under the constellation of the Great Bear, which, which I wrote about in the book The Portal. I, I wrote just about that journey with the guide. She was also his guide, and she came from. She came from Hungary. She was a Habsburg, actually. Uh, I didn't know that too long after her death. But anyway, she um, she was one of the most um, full, full, fully knowledgeable, absolutely assured in her knowledge people I'd ever met. You know, there were there were no bad days with her. She lived the spiritual joyous program. I mean, I'm not saying she was a, a joy, always a joyous person, no, but she knew why live, you know, half mask when you can know the full thing about life, the full experience. Why live like under a stone where you can climb a mountain? So she told me things about him which were signs of his being an initiate. And, you know, there were things when they first met, she knew he already had been initiated in Paris. So he could, as for the the journey, which I did, he'd already done it. He'd done it with her. And I'm sure he'd done it a great deal more skillfully than I could do it. I mean, I was limited. I mean, my journey was um, a rather kind of ordinary, trapped by my physical limitations kind of journey, right? So. Um, the other, the other stuff. I mean, you know, he could do, and others before him, they've they went a lot further than me. But I went, I did what I did. That was that was my 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 role. Yeah. Maybe another, I'd do it again with somebody else. But I think I thought I completed something with that that woman, that guide. And yeah. I'm very grateful to her. Did this involve us uh, joining a, a some sort of society of people? Yes, there. Are, yes, exactly. They were like the Freemasons. Um, they're very. It's a very old society. It protects. Um, I would say secrets, um, hidden knowledge, which um, uh, there is always a custodian, or more than one custodial role actually in that society. It's um, certainly in Spain, in Girona, also in um, Paris, um, and it has outreaches, but not not to London that I know of. Don't know any of that. Don't think so. And it's um, also the Kabbalists were there in Girona. They were they had a very very strong school of Kabbalah there. It was Gershom Sholem who was um, a scholar in Kabbalah and Jewish. Um, he was a rabbinic scholar, I and mean, he said it was the the centre of Kabbalah in the world, Girona, in the 13th century on until the expulsion in the 14th. 1992, no, it's 12th century, till 1492, when the Jews were expelled from Spain. But Jerome had mysticism there in in place anyway before. No, it wasn't even before the society, because that was already in place then. But they had many, um, the Romans came before that, there were Phoenicians, there were many different 
landings, the Jews had come in, in long before Christ, apparently. Everyone has their dates in their history books of what happened, but they always find a remain that says, oh no, it's even older, it goes back further. So Girona kind of gets older. It's in northeast Spain and Catalonia. It gets older than with every year you go there. I mean, I, when I first went uh, in the 50s, it was um, 4,000 years old. But now it's like 25,000 years old. Mm, so yeah. in amongst all of that, there's one skein of very strong um, protection of a mystical secret. That's what I would say. And what is the name of the society that you joined, that you're initiate? That I can't say. Oh, you can't mm -hmm. say? Okay, all right. No. There's some areas I can't go in there, but um, I can say, you know, that the I can see the benefit of keeping, uh, keeping things hidden um, because the, one of the custodians said to me, this is um, something which could not be in the wrong hands. It would be bring the planet to unbelievable darkness. And also, we have to wait for a more optimistic time for this to be part of our world. Um, whether or not in the age of science and um, um, discoveries in other places, other spheres outside of our own, which I'm sure the ancient people knew anyway, but we're kind of rediscovering. It probably would not be, um, you know, it would not be so surprising. But I think it is in today's sort of world. And when they said, you know, we, we have to wait for a more optimistic time to bring this out, then they decided quite recently that it's not optimistic. <laughs> it's not an optimistic time. So it is, I think, amongst the, amongst the group who've always run it, they've always been at a vow of secrecy. They've always been very academic, um, established people. They're from Catalonia and also from France and sometimes from um, Europe, Northern Europe. Um, I would say that they bring to the table some quite important and helpful, useful things and ideas and ways to handle what is already there. Is that the nature of their work? Are they basically, they're part of the great work uh, trying to advance humanity? Is that is that their purpose? They're trying to, um, I would say they're trying to help people to evolve into a more etheric spiritual state. That would be what, what this would be. Right, yeah. It would be all beneficial. All the rituals are for the benefit of everybody. And, you know, some good people come in from India and so on now. You know, it's, it has an, um, a wide-reaching, beneficial, beautiful, um, absolutely freeing um, effect. If you're anywhere near it, you know, if people have been, they've been in the vicinity of it. It is, um, it is wonderful. It's beautiful. Yeah. And 
it's the it's a, a trails of light. It comes from um, the the child of light that came to the planet five thousand years ago. So that's where it seems to have started. Might have been before. I don't know. But, did, um, did you say the child of light or the trail of light? Yes, child of light. What is the child of light? So some people think that's Luciferic, but there's no proof it was Lucifer. But that has been one of the big issues of the last time, you know hundreds of years about that being of light that came here before Christ. When there's someone famous, for example, Salvador Dali, or just anybody, a movie star or anything, are they contacted by these secret societies um, and given an offer of initiation? No. Is that how it works? No, no, no. Never, no. Um, it comes around through an experience in the person themselves. Like in Dali's case and Jean Cocteau it came around and, and Rurik Nicholas Rurik as well he was in it um, you, you I'm told always because I, I used to say to the man you know that I was with who he, he was in the society he was a custodian for a while he never told me anything about it not for years um, I knew there was something happening but I didn't know what believe me I didn't but then um you know, it, it, I said, well, how do you know an initiate? He said, well, you don't go and ask. Um, if, you, if they say, if they ask you, you know they're not an initiate themselves. And if someone says yes or no, they're not an initiate. You wouldn't, you wouldn't ask a question. You would know that that person is on a certain level of involvement, and that would be enough. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a bit like 33-degree masonry, I think, mm -hmm. but more higher on. More, more, going much further, going out there into a bigger, you know, through through portals. Portals, I would say for them, are as normal as doorways are for me. So, I would think that that the way they experience um, existence is phenomenal. I think the way I experienced it in my journey to the portal um, with the guide some years ago now, I would say it benefited me for a while. It took away fear. It gave a much wider scale of seeing what was what this was all about. I had a sense of freedom. Yet again, I felt really um, transformed. But I know that the initiates who do this, they don't benefit themselves. They benefit the planet. Right. Yeah. They do good, amazing work. I think that could be a good segue into um, going to the next hour. So we'll take a break. Um, and then after that, we can discuss uh, your book, The Portal, An Initiate's Journey into the Secrets of Renle Chateau. But first, yes. can you give us an idea how people can find out more about you, your website and stuff like that? Oh, Amazon. Yeah. I'm, well, no, Google. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> just... Patrice Chaplin at Google. Right. So, yeah. So um, if you just search for Pat Patrice Chaplin on Google, but she also, you also have patricechaplin.uk. Is that your website? That's a website. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And then it's, Facebook. I don't, Facebook, Facebook yeah. as well. Oh, Patrice Chaplin, whatever, is it? well, Facebook, Patrice. Yeah. Facebook.com uh, slash Patrice Chaplin. And then Twitter is at Patrice Chaplin, all one word. During the second hour of our interview with Patrice, we discuss Modigliani's links to esotericism. We then discuss spiritual guides, the purpose of initiation, Patrice's book, The Portal, spiritual paths in the Pyrenees, 
the Stone Cradle, Portals Around the World, Gramercy Park, Primrose Hill, Marleybone, the beauty of Girona, the house of the French lady, Asmodeus' statue at Rennes-le-Chateau, the unborn Messiah, the child of light, and Otto Ron. Thank you for listening to Hour One of Jesse War Radio. We hope that you have enjoyed this program and found it informative. Stay tuned and check back each Friday for a new episode. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar, or one word. Members can access our two of all shows in the members' archive at jessiewar.com. If you haven't yet considered becoming a member of Jesse War Radio, please click on the subscribe link in the top navigation bar at jessiewar.com where you can register for access to the members' archive, where both hours of all shows are available. Jesse War Radio is where we keep on peering further and further behind the veil of esoteric iconology and symbolism, with a new show every Friday. Farewell until next time.